Hi, this is Josh, and welcome to the Baseball Week, a weekly look around Major League Baseball. Let's start off with our Player, Pitcher, and Team of the Week. And Player of the Week this past week was the Atlanta Braves super rookie Ronald Acuna, who had a really great week for the Braves, most notably perhaps hitting a home run to lead off the game in the first game of a doubleheader and the second game of a doubleheader and then hitting a home run to lead off the game again the next day. So three straight games, including two in one day, Acuna hit a leadoff home run for the Braves. And his stats all week were really super impressive as well. Uh, he just had dominant performance this past week for the Braves and was involved in a little bit of controversy, not his fault as well, when in the start of a game against the Miami Marlins, uh, who Acuna had done a lot of this home run damage against. He was hit by the first pitch of a game uh, from Marlins pitcher Jose Arena. Acuna left that game. There were some current concerns. It could be a serious injury. Fortunately, he was able to come back and play the next day. Looks like he escaped any serious injury, but still a very controversial moment uh, with Acuna getting hit after these few great, great games that he played. Uh, Jose Arena was suspended six games for... Uh, that incident, he's currently appealing the suspension. But Acuna has continued to play really well the rest of the week, and he is certainly deserving of a player of the week, and he's also put himself right in the middle of the rookie of the year race in the National League, along with players like the super 19-year-old for the Washington Nationals, Juan Soto. But Ronald Acuna, our player of the week. Pitcher of the week for this past week goes to Jolice Chassin of the Milwaukee Brewers. He pitched 13 innings and gave up zero earned runs. Giving up zero earned runs is a good way to get pitcher of the week. Went 2-0 this week, uh, gave up just seven hits in those two games as well. So Milwaukee is right in the middle of the playoff race. We'll look more at the National League playoff race later in the episode, but Julius Chassin, our player of the week, with, uh, again, two starts, no runs. That's a good way to do it. And our team of the week, the Oakland Athletics. What a story they've been. First month or two of the season. Look like they're having around a 500 year or so. Not that much going on. Not a team that was expected to do a whole lot preseason. But then they just began turning it on. Before we knew it, they were significantly over 500. But still, the American League, such a stacked league with those top few teams, that Oakland was still far in the distance of the wild card. We had Yankees and Boston battling for the American League East. We had Cleveland running away with the American League Central. And we had Houston running away with the American League West. Seattle running away with the second wild card. Uh, with the Yankee Red Sox getting the other one midway through the season. That's what it looked like. And it didn't seem like there was going to be a whole lot of drama for the American League playoff spots. But nobody told Oakland. They kept winning. They kept winning. And before we knew it, they were on the heels of Seattle. And then they just kept winning. Seattle struggled much more than they have earlier in the season. And... Suddenly, look, and Oakland passes Seattle for the second wild card. And I think that's that's great. That's amazing to make that kind of in-season comeback from being so far down to Seattle earlier in the year. But that wasn't enough for Oakland this past week with really impressive series wins against Seattle and against Houston. Oakland actually tied Houston for first place in the American League West. The high-powered Houston Astros with a brilliant starting staff, World Series champions, Yes, Houston's had a lot of injuries recently to a bunch of key players. That certainly hurt them. But Oakland, a very unheralded team still, to tie Houston for the American League West when they were way in the distance earlier in the year is just incredibly impressive and shows this team's got a lot of grit, this team's got a lot of heart. Those things you can't measure, Oakland is, has them in spades and 
Oakland is not just in the race for the American League wild card, but they are in the race for the American League West crown, and they are a team to be reckoned with the rest of the season. And for our stats of the week this week, we want to look at a couple of rare occurrences in multi-out plays, starting with a triple play turned by the Texas Rangers against the Anaheim Angels on Thursday. Now, triple plays are fun. They're nice. They're unusual. Just on the surface, though, they're not quite enough to get the stat of the week. But this was no ordinary triple play. This was a triple play the likes of which had not been seen for over 100 years. This was a triple play hit by Anaheim, a ground ball to Texas, third base, ground ball to the third base bag. The fielder picked up the ball, tagged the runner who was on third, tagged third base, threw to the second baseman, who then tagged a runner as well. All told, it was a tricky play. The end result was the three batters were out, the batter who started the play on third base, the batter who started the play on second base, and the batter who started the play on first base. The batter not retired was the batter who actually hit the ball. This was the first triple play in 106 years in which the batter was not retired as part of the triple play. The batter did not get out on this play. The runner on first, the runner on second, the runner on third, they all got out. The batter did not get out. And that has not happened for a triple play in over 100 years since June 3rd, 1912, which is really quite remarkable. It's not a kind of thing you would really think about, a triple play where the batter doesn't even get out, but the fact that it's been such a long time is really quite remarkable, really quite fun, and really quite uh, good enough to be part of our stat of the week. Also in Adventures in Multi-Out Plays, Cubs-Pirates uh, series this weekend. On the Saturday game, started by Cole Hamels of the Cubs, who's been great since the Cubs acquired him, by the way. Uh, the Cubs defeated the Pirates, and the Cubs turned seven double plays in a nine-inning game. Seven different innings involved a double play where two Pirates got out on the same play. That is tied for the most double plays ever in a nine-inning game. So literally only two innings of this game did not involve a double play when the Pirates were at bat, which is really quite remarkable as well. And again, good enough to be part of our stat of the week. By the way, also in that Cubs-Pirates series, there were nine runs scored combined between the two teams in the four-game series. That's the fewest runs scored in a four-game series since 1958. Also in the series, the Cubs scored one run in each of the four games, all of which were scored on solo home runs. So a solo home run in each of the four games, no other runs at all. That's never happened before in a four-game series. That's actually a first right there. So we're going to throw that in as part of the stat of the week, too. Very pitcher-friendly stats of the week this week. Uh, Cubs fire series embodied that quite well. Also, let's take a little look at the playoff race, especially in the National League. We talked a little bit about the American League Earlier with Oakland nodding it up with Houston uh, on Saturday. Houston took a one-game lead again on Sunday. We're a little late getting the podcast out this week. So it's actually Monday right now, not Sunday. But let's cheat and say on, on Sunday, Houston won. They went back up one game. Justin Verlander got his 200th career victory in that game for Houston, by the way. What a great career he's been having. So Houston and Oakland battling it out in the American League West. Cleveland running away with it still in the American League Central. Boston really running away with the American League East at this point, nine and a half games up on the Yankees, who are well-positioned for a wild card. But the National League is well, much less clear. The American League's got some fun races. Can Seattle get a wild card? Can they catch up to Oakland and Houston and the Yankees, who are ahead right now? Oakland three and a half up on Seattle. Can Houston hold on? Can the Yankees try to chip away at Boston's big lead that they've gotten? 
very exciting races, but the National League race is really, really wild. So let's just go division by division here. American League East, right now the Atlanta Braves with a half-game lead on the Philadelphia Phillies. Braves are 13 games over 500. Phillies are 12 games over 500. Keep that in mind. 13 games over for the Braves, 12 over for the Phillies. Washington Nationals, by the way, one game under 500 right now. Not in good shape. They need to get on a run soon. Will it happen? They've got the talent to do it. Remains to be seen. The Braves 13 over. Phillies 12 over. American League, National League Central. Chicago Cubs have a little bit of separation from the rest of the league. They are 19 games over 500, so they're in pretty good shape. After them, we go three and a half back of the Cubs are the Milwaukee Brewers, who are 12 over 500. The St. Louis Cardinals are 11 over 500. And Pittsburgh's also hanging around one game over 500. So Braves are 13 over, Phillies are 12 over, Brewers are 12 over, Cardinals are 11 over. American League West now. Arizona D-backs lead the division. They're 13 games over 500. The Rockies are second, half game back, they're 12 over. Dodgers are two back, they're nine over. So this is what we have. We've got the Cubs in good shape. Cubs look like they're going to be making the playoffs barring a little mini collapse. They're 19 games over 500. After that is chaos. We have Atlanta's 13 over, Arizona's 13 over, the Phillies are 12 over, the Brewers are 12 over, the Rockies are 12 over, the Cardinals are 11 over, the Dodgers are 9 over. So, that is a nice group of seven teams right there. Braves, Phillies, Brewers, Cardinals, D-backs, Rockies, Dodgers. Four of them most likely are making the playoffs, unless somebody goes on a big run. It's going to be four of them making the playoffs, three of them not. Which of those four will make it? I have absolutely no idea. It is a really fun race with so many teams so packed together in this, you could say, parity field, or you could say strong However you want to phrase the National League, it is a fun league to follow this year. So the National League playoff race is impossible to parse for all intents and purposes. No one really knows what's going to happen, which teams are going to make the playoffs, and that's what's fun about it. To try to get a little bit of bearings, though, we're going to take a look at run differential, which just shows how well a team is doing compared to their opponents in gross runs scored this year. Run differential oftentimes is helpful, case in point, the American League. Boston is the best record in baseball, and they have the best run differential, plus 216, which is quite remarkable. Sometimes run differential is approximate, but not super. For example, Houston has uh, the third best record, they have the second best run differential. The Yankees have the second best record, they have the third best run differential. Sometimes run differential just doesn't help that much, though. The Seattle Mariners, they're 17 games over 500. Their run differential is minus 42. Now, there's another point of view that says, okay, well, the Mariners' run differential of minus 42 tells us that by the end of the season, they're going to regress toward that more. They're going to regress toward the 500 mark because of that. What that run differential is indicating is that they've been lucky this year. So maybe run differential means that, or maybe run differential means that the Seattle Mariners are clutch. Now, I know that there is no advanced stat that really measures clutch correctly, and some people say there is no such thing as clutch. I don't know. To be quite honest, I can't wade into this debate too much. I feel like there is some clutchness factor for teams. I feel like the Seattle Mariners are better than a team usually that would have a minus 42 run differential. For example, the Minnesota Twins are 16, I'm sorry, 15 games under 500 with a minus 21 run differential. I do believe the Seattle Mariners are better than the Minnesota Twins despite the Twins having a better run differential. 
I do also think the Mariners have overachieved. Run differential tells us they're going to regress a little more as the season continues. I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. But at the same time, teams have made the playoffs before with negative run differentials. So what I mean to say here is that run differential is useful. It's helpful. It can maybe predict a little bit how a team might do down the stretch. It's a tool we can use, but it is far from everything. But to use this in the National League to try to parse things a little bit, Team with the best run differential is the LA Dodgers, actually. Team with the eighth best record in the National League, best run differential. Uh, then we kind of have a group here, the Cubs, Braves, and D-backs, all with very nice run differentials as well, kind of the next tier down. Dodgers are plus 113. Those other three teams, Braves, Cubs, and D-backs are in the 80s. Uh, so that would seem to be four of the five playoff teams right there, according to run differential at least. And then it gets even more interesting. Because the team with the next best run differential at plus 59 is the Washington Nationals, who are one game under 500. So does this mean the Nationals are going to go on a run, make it to their appropriate win level, and get into the postseason as the last wild card? Or does it mean that they're just not doing well in close games and it's one of those things? I don't know. It could go either way, and that's, why, again, why it's so much fun to watch. I will mention for the other teams in contention, the Brewers have a plus 22 run differential. The Phillies have a plus 8 run differential, and the Rockies have a minus 12 run differential. So if you want to look at run differential that way, it looks like it would be the Braves, the Cubs, the D-backs, and, well, Nationals or Cardinals are similar, and the Cardinals have a much better record, so I'd give them the edge. However, as the season show us, I am almost definitely wrong with what I just said as far as who will make the playoffs. And there's a thousand other ways to look at things as well. For example, you could say who have been the hottest teams recently. Well, the Cardinals and Rockies have been really hot recently. And those two teams, if they keep emerging, maybe they'll get the wild cards. Uh, and the Cubs get a division. D-backs or Rockies, I'm sorry, D-backs or Dodgers uh, get in as well. And then either the Braves or Phillies. So maybe the Cardinals and Rockies have the edge. Or maybe it's the teams the experts like the best, the Cubs and the D-backs. I'm sorry, the Cubs and the Dodgers really the two teams talked about the most, especially after the Dodgers got Manny Machado. Maybe they'll become the cream of the crop in the National League. Or maybe it'll just be who knows what, and the fact that it could just be who knows what is what makes the rest of this season so much fun to watch, especially in the wild and wacky National League. By the way, let's do our trivia question of the week as well. Right now, there is a great Cy Young race in the National League going on between Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer. Aaron Nola is having a brilliant season for the Phillies. He's probably in third right now. DeGrom and Scherzer both having incredible seasons. DeGrom with an ERA below two. Both players with really great ERA. Scherzer's ERA just a little bit above two. Scherzer with a much better record. And again, record for starting pitchers or for any pitcher has not had the impact as far as how we evaluate pitchers that it used to have. And, for example, a few years back, Felix Fernandez of the Mariners won the Cy Young with a 500 record. DeGrom's record's been hovering around 500 as well. Big, one of the big questions in this race is, will such a poor record, and he gets very very low run support oftentimes from the Mets, will such a poor record hurt DeGrom in the race, or will the fact he has a better ERA, and he is so close with Scherzer in so many areas, uh, allow him to get the award? It is one of the most intriguing Cy Young award races in recent years, and it's going to be fun to watch and fun to see what the voters value the most between these two players. But this does bring on our trivia question of the week, which is who is the last pitcher to have an ERA below two in a season? And I should mention that there is not just one answer. This actually happened the last year. It happened multiple pitchers 
managed to have ERAs under two in the same season. So who are those two pitchers who had ERAs under two in the same season, the two most recent pitchers to do it? One hint, the two pitchers who did it are in the National League, same year in the National League. For bonus points, who was the last pitcher in the American League to have an ERA below two? All of this will be revealed at the end of the episode. First, let's talk about something great from baseball this past week, and that something great is the Little League World Series, which is going on right now in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Williamsport hosts the Little League World Series every year, has uh, teams and players from all over the country and all over the world who come. Uh, In the tournament, half the teams are American teams, half the teams are from the different continents of the world, and it's a great annual event, kind of a celebration of baseball and youth. And what Major League Baseball has done the past couple years, which is really quite cool, is they've had a Major League game played at a ballpark in Williamsport during the Little League World Series. The Philadelphia Phillies have a single-A team, and Williamsport cross-cutters who play in Williamsport. And this minor league park hosts a Major League game each of the past two years, and it's going to continue next year. The first year they did it last year, it was the Pittsburgh Pirates and the St. Louis Cardinals. And this year, this past Sunday, it was the Philadelphia Phillies and the New York Mets. It was really cool to read about the Major League players and how excited they were to be part of this experience in Williamsport to get to hang out and meet some of the Little League players, get to watch Little League games. You knew it would be a thrill for the Little Leaguers to see the Major Leaguers, but hearing some of the Major Leaguers talk, it was such a thrill for them as well. Hearing someone like Scott Kingery of the Phillies, who played in the Little League World Series um, when he was young in Arizona, hearing him be so excited about getting to meet some Little Leaguers. We're hearing Andrew Knapp, who's team barely missed the Little League World Series when he was young in California, uh, he being so excited to get called back up by the Phillies and to get to go see Little his Little League games. He bought a Little League hat. He was so excited to said, finally make it to Williamsport. Uh, so just a really great experience and so cool to see how excited the major leaguers are to be part of this too. A really cool, really cool circle of baseball right there. I should mention also that Michael Conforto and Todd Frazier of the Mets also former Little League World Series participants who got to go back this weekend with the Mets as they played the Phillies. And Todd Frazier was a star and one of the, the big heroes for his Thomas River, New Jersey Little League team, uh, who had such a great run in the, Little, in the Little League World Series in the late 90s. Now here he is playing nearby there with the New York Mets, and he gets to go back to Williamsport again, this time as a Major League star. So it's really nice stories. Little League World Series is something that makes you feel good about sports. So that's our show for this week. We do want to look at the trivia answer. The last two players uh, to have an ERA below two for a full season. This is among starting pitchers. Relievers have done it, but among starting pitchers with enough innings to qualify for the ERA title to have an ERA below two. This happened in 2015, the great National League Cy Young race of 2015, maybe the best I can remember. Uh, Zach Granke and Jake Arrieta, both with ERAs under two. Granke with a 1.66 ERA. Arietta with a 1.77 ERA. And Clayton Kershaw had a brilliant year that year, too, with a 2.13 ERA for the Dodgers. And that was the incredible three-man race for the Cy Young, which, again, I don't know if I remember a Cy Young race that was that exciting. The Scherzer-DeGrom duel has a chance to be close to that this year, but those three pitchers, what brilliant years they had. By the way, Arietta won the Cy Young that year. Arietta had one of the best second halves that season of any pitcher in baseball history and it gave him the edge over the Cy Young, over the Dodgers, edge for the Cy Young over the two Dodgers teammates, Granke and Kershaw. 
And a little more, our bonus trivia question, who is the last American League pitcher to have an ERA below two? You've got to go all the way back to the year 2000. A lot of times it's tougher in the American League because they have the DH, so the offenses are a little stronger. But the last American League pitcher of the year 2000, in the heart of one of the strongest offensive eras in baseball history, Pedro Martinez had an ERA of 1.74. Some people say this is one of the best pitching years for an individual pitcher. It's one of the worst pitching years overall, but one of the best years for an individual pitcher ever. Pedro Martinez has 1.74 ERA. To put that in context, the second best ERA for an American League starting pitcher that year was 3.70 from Roger Clemens. It's about two full runs worse than Pedro Martinez's. He had about a two-run lead in the ERA race. That is not something that happens in a regular season. Uh, Pedro Martinez's walks and hits per innings pitch that year, so the number of walks and hits he gave up per each inning, was 0.74, which is the best walks and hits per innings pitched ever, ever in a season in baseball. Uh, and again, he did this in the middle of one of the strongest offensive eras baseball has ever seen, and he showed such utter dominance that season that, again, some people do make the argument, and you can understand why they do, that this was the best season ever for a pitcher. And certainly deserving of the Cy Young Award that year. Uh, so Pedro Martinez's 2000 year, 2000 year, one for the one for the record books. Why I can't even, so excited by the brilliance, it's hard for me to say it, but one for the record books, a one legendary season. So that then is our show for this week. Any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us at thebaseballweek at gmail.com. That's thebaseballweek at gmail.com. And a reminder, we just posted another episode of our baseball conversation series with friend of the show, Kevin. He's talking about changes made to Major League Baseball. It was a really fun conversation to have. And that episode is on the podcast feed as well. We'll be posting another episode on this topic with Kevin soon as well. So stay tuned for that. Again, thanks so much for listening, and have a wonderful week. Take care.